0: The following message is from Pastor Peter Cho of Emanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emanuel Community Church can be found at emmanuelcommunity.org. When I was attending university uh, many, many years ago, I was looking for um, an easy elective class, um, and a friend suggested that I take this class called Intro to Film. And when I realized you can get credit hours just for watching movies, I was like, sign me up. <laughs> it's my kind of class. And uh, I remember the first film that we watched in this class was, um, was a film called Citizen Kane. Anyone see this movie, Citizen Kane? It's a very old film. It's released in 1941 by Orson Welles, which is widely regarded as one of the best films of all time. And the movie opens with this very flawed protagonist. His name is Charles Foster Kane, or Citizen Kane. And he's this wealthy newspaper magnate. He's lying on his deathbed in the opening scene. And he's holding this small snow globe in his hand, and he whispers a single word with his last dying breath. And he says, Rosebud. Rosebud. That's what he says. And the rest of the film is dedicated to solving this great mystery. What is the meaning of this word, Rosebud why did this powerful and influential man speak it in his dying breath and what might it reveal to us about him and that we don't know and so the audience is taken through a series of flashbacks of the rise and fall of citizen kane's life in the hopes of discovering the meaning of this word and, you know, maybe think, I know many of us have parents right now who are aging rapidly and their health is deteriorating very quickly and it's so hard to walk through a season like this. And yet one of the blessings, I think, that comes from this experience is that it kind of forces you to talk about the things that matter, right? Like what is most near and dear to your heart quickly comes to the surface when, when you feel like time is running out. You don't want anything left unsaid. And so in those last tender moments, final words are held closely, and they're remembered, and they're treasured. And if our final words matter so much, I think it's important to to ask, like, what were Jesus' final words in his last days? And after several years with his disciples, teaching them about the good news of the kingdom, performing miracles, spending nearly every waking moment with them, what does Jesus have to say in his last moments? What does he reveal that is of utmost importance to him? Well, thankfully, unlike Citizen Kane, we don't have to wonder or try to solve this mystery. The Apostle John records exactly what Jesus says in the upper room just days before his death. While sharing a Passover meal with them, he says quite a bit. But I think so much of what he shared that night can be summarized in these two verses that we find in John chapter 13. And Jesus says this, he says, A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Now, Jesus could have said anything at this point, and yet his primary concern before he leaves his disciples seems to be how they would go about demonstrating their love for one another. And up until this point, all of his disciples, they've been jockeying for positions of power and prominence. They want to ride this wave of popularity with Jesus. And they're not even trying to conceal their selfish ambitions in front of one another. If you remember, even James and John's mother has the audacity to openly ask Jesus to grant her boys a seat to his right and to his left, which kind of sets all the other disciples off, right? you believe this family and yet the truth is they were all angry and they were all indignant because they all wanted the same thing and so it's with this group and in this context that Jesus says a new command I give you a new command and it's a bit strange because Jesus although Jesus says this is a new command it's not really a new command is it he has taught them this repeatedly both in private and in public but I think Jesus presents it as new because it is apparently still very new to them. This love that he is commanding them to practice is not their version of a watered-down, self-serving love, but it's a new command of God's love, which is a radical, self-giving love in community with one another. It's radical, and that it is undeserved. It's unconditional And it's self-giving in that it is sacrificial and it's selfless. And Jesus shows them what this looks like moments before by doing what? He washes their feet. This is a task that is relegated to like the lowest of the low servants. And now he instructs them to follow his own example. And he follows with another bold statement. He says, this, this is going to be the singular characteristic of someone who truly follows me the way that you love one another. That's how the world will know. And you think about that. That's pretty profound. Jesus doesn't say that they will know you follow me by your knowledge of his word or the fidelity of your doctrine. He doesn't say they're going to know that you're mine by your spiritual gifts or your supernatural miracles or by your moral purity or your spiritual piety. He says the world will know that you are mine by the way that you love one another. And that's pretty amazing. And it made me think, like, what about our church? If we claim to be followers of Jesus Christ at ICC, is that what we are known for? And I think, you know, truthfully, we're known for a lot of different things. And we get a lot of visitors based on our reputation on a lot of different things. But are we known for the one thing that really matters? Are we known for what Jesus says we should be known for? Are we known by our love for, our love for one another? And I don't know. <laughs> you know, I would hope that this is at least in the conversation when people talk about our church, but if I'm honest, I think this is a growth area for us and honestly for a lot of churches because I think like most people, we tend to gravitate towards those who are most like us because they're the most comfortable to be around. And they are the easiest to love. And this is a very human tendency. And I think we have to be honest about that. And even in the church, we are naturally drawn to those that we share the most in common with. And by that, I mean the people who look like us, who talk like us, who think like us, who share the same personality and preferences and pastimes as us. Those are the people that are the easiest to love. Those are the people that we're drawn to. Those are the people that we gravitate towards. But here's the thing. Jesus Jesus calls his followers to a radical, self-giving love that pushes us beyond our comfort zones and transcends all traditional boundary lines. We are called to share this extraordinary love that goes far beyond our natural affinities. Why? So that the world might see the power of God's unifying love within his family of faith. He says it's right here, right amongst you guys, amongst you who say you follow me. That's how the world's going to know. You know, there are so many examples where God pushes his people to love beyond their limits um, in the New Testament, but I want to focus on one particular point in the early church where we see God stretching his people towards the way of Jesus. And it's found in Acts chapter 6 while the church is still in its infancy stage. The apostles are preaching the gospel boldly in Jerusalem and the church is growing. Great things are happening and it's here in Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7, I want to read. It says this, And in those days, when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews, Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together, and they said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom, and we will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the Word. This proposal pleased the whole group, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmanas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. And they presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them so the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. You know, this passage is often glossed over as just this nice text about the formation of the church's first deacons or the importance of delegating duties to avoid ministry burnout. But I believe God is giving us um, more than just information on church history or instruction on church polity. This is the first recorded conflict within the early church. And Luke, who is the writer of Acts, he doesn't shy away from the fact that it's between two groups of people that are different. They're different culturally, they're different ethnically, and there's a conflict here. And we have the Hellenistic Jews, right? And these are Jews who had come from other parts of the Roman Empire, outside of Judea, who you might say identified as Greek in addition to their Jewish heritage. They typically spoke Greek, and they were raised practicing Greek customs and influenced by Greek culture. And then you have the Hebraic Jews, the Hebrew Jews that were Jews who likely lived in Jerusalem or just outside in Judea, and they spoke Aramaic, and they followed traditional Jewish customs, and they identified more as Orthodox or Jewish Jews. And it seems like a small and a simple issue, right? The food is not being distributed fairly to everyone, and yet this is a big deal, right? It's enough of an issue that it engages the apostles because apparently what's happening is more than just an administrative oversight. There's favoritism that's being shown to one particular ethnic group of people, the widows who were Hebraic Jews, and it was to the detriment of the Hellenistic Jewish widows. And if you remember all of this is happening in the city of Jerusalem, and so the Hellenistic Jews, they're the outsiders. They're the minorities here. They don't fit in as easily in language, in culture, in customs, among the more dominant Hebraic Jewish majority of early believers who were actually well represented even among the apostles. And so there's a complaint that is filed to address this injustice. And so what we see are like the first seeds of division are beginning to take root in the early church and it's along these ethnic and these cultural lines. And I don't know, it's really not that surprising that the enemy would use this as one of the first ways in dividing the church. Because if you look at the long history of the church, even today, it's really a tried and true strategy, isn't it? So effective. What is happening here is neither loving nor kind. And it actually contradicts Jesus' new command to love one another. But it's also very normal, right? In a dog-eat-dog world, in the Roman Empire, where the majority rules and where might makes right... How would the church respond to this first real internal and interpersonal conflict? You know, I love the way that the apostles handle this because they do it in such a wise and a winsome way. First, they could have easily allowed this issue to just exhaust all their time and energy, but they immediately recognized look, we cannot get distracted here from what God has called us to do as apostles. We got to continue to dedicate ourselves to the ministry of the word, the teaching of the word, and to prayer because they knew that the only way that the church could grow in their love for one another was to continue to disciple them in their love for God through the teaching of the word and through prayer. And so they knew people have to first receive a supernatural love before they can love supernaturally. And it's notable that they didn't let this racial injustice distract them from their gospel calling and committed themselves to just keeping the main thing, the main thing. I think it's very important. But if you look at the text, they didn't, they didn't minimize this issue either. They said, we really need to deal with this. And so they empowered the brothers and sisters, both the men and the women of the church, early church, to choose seven trustworthy men of character to oversee the distribution of the food for the broader church. And we're given the names of each of these seven men. Stephen, Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmanus, and Nicolas. I think we're given their names for good reason. Luke wants us to know that they're all Greek names, which means the very first deacons were were likely from the Hellenistic Jewish community. One was even a proselyte, a Gentile. And these men would not only have the character, but they would have the empathy to ensure that those who weren't being cared for would now be cared for, which not only promoted unity and love within the early church, but also played probably a key role in bringing the cultural and language gap between these two groups together. And this was all done under the direction of the Holy Spirit. And you can see how it was a pivotal moment that allows the early church to continue to grow so that we're told even the priests, the most orthodox of the Hebraic Jews, were won over. And, you know, I I don't know, this is so encouraging to me because I think it gives us a glimpse into the heart of God and his desire for us. That we all come together, unified by our love for Christ to the glory of God as a witness to the world. And this is one of the first times the disciples are challenged to practice Jesus' new command. And as they do, they're brought together in love, and the church moves forward. It encourages me to see the church obey this in one of its earliest tests. But it also makes me wonder, like, what, what has happened to that church? So many churches that seem to have lost the spirit of love and unity I want to show a very brief um, interview of America's most famous civil rights activist, Reverend Martin Luther King Jr., who says something very profound um, when interviewed, I think on Meet the Press, back in 1960. It's a very short video. If you can go ahead and play it. I think it is one of the tragedies of our nation, one of the shameful tragedies, that 11 o'clock on Sunday morning is one of the most segregated hours, if not the most segregated hours, in Christian America. Uh, I definitely think the Christian church should be integrated, and any church that uh, stands against integration and that has a segregated body is standing against the Spirit and the teachings of Jesus Christ. And it fails to be a true witness. Uh, But this is something that the church will have to do itself. I don't think church integration will come through uh, legal processes. I might say that my church is not a segregating church. It's segregated, but not segregating. It would welcome white members. So I don't know if you could hear that clearly, but he said 11 a.m. in America is probably the most segregated hour in this nation. And it's sad, you know, this was 1960, I think it's sadly still true even today in 2023 that this hour in America continues to be one of the most segregated hours in our country where we often divide ourselves by our race or ethnicity. And I, I don't think it's because people are trying to be evil necessarily or prejudiced, but it's in these smaller circles where we share these more natural affinities that we find it's the most easiest, right, to be in community, to love one another, to be comfortable, to have fellowship. And I know talking about race can be divisive. It can trigger very strong feelings in people. I know it can also be painful because the world often uses the language of race to divide and to draw lines of exclusion and justify prejudice and injustice. But the Bible speaks about it very differently. You know, God clearly honors the diversity and the beauty of creation, especially within mankind, the crown of his creation, by recognizing the diversity of nations and tribes and languages. And God knows that while the world uses these words to build enmity, to divide and to conquer, God chose us a better way through his son. That Jesus alone has the power to bring people of all nations and tribes and languages and tongues together in peace and unity. And, you know, I think we see a glimpse of it here, even in this room. When people ask me to describe ICC, it's, it's often very difficult for me and I, because even though Koreans are very well represented here, Um, There's diversity even among the Korean Americans, I believe, in our church. We have a lot of Korean Americans in our church who were born and raised in the U.S., like me. And we also have many Koreans who were born in Korea and who are more comfortable speaking Korean, perhaps feel more culturally Korean. And sometimes it's hard to tell, even on the surface, until you watch the Olympics, right? (laughs) And Korea is competing against the U.S., and then you know. (laughs) (laughs) You know, but I I love that we have two groups of Korean Americans at ICC who worship together. It reminds me a bit of how the Hellenistic and the Hebraic Jews came together in the early church. But ICC is not a Korean American second generation church. right? We've never actually been affiliated or part of a Korean church. And truth be told, we have many different ethnicities and nations represented here. We have people who have either come from or their parents have emigrated from China, from Japan, from Taiwan, from the Philippines, from India, And not just Asian countries, but Mexico, Canada, Germany, South Africa, Uzbekistan, Iraq, Syria. We even hired a youth pastor from New Zealand because we wanted some more representation from Oceania. (laughs) (laughs) And we have diversity, not just among our families, but diversity within our families. Did you know about like one fourth of our church is made up of mixed marriages? I think that's a beautiful thing. And we have not just ethnic diversity, we have generational diversity and people of all ages that are worshiping here. And and that's one of the things I love most about ICC, because there's no way to explain, like, why or how all of us will come together in this place if it was not for Jesus Christ. And I think this is worth celebrating, because it reflects the glory of God. But I also think loving across boundary lines is still very much an area of growth for us. Just because we worship together doesn't mean that we are truly loving one another. Sometimes the way love is demonstrated or love is denied can be very subtle, just like in Acts 6. So I want to ask, how do we consciously or subconsciously draw boundary lines around the ways that we love people who are different from us, even here within our church, and not just ethnically or culturally, but even in terms of our social circles, our education, our income levels, our age, or gender. I don't think most of us even realize that we do this, but we draw lines around these categories. And we choose to love generously those who are more similar to us versus those that are not. And if I could just press even a bit further here. like Who is it that we gravitate towards and talk to even after our services during the fellowship time? Who do we invite into our homes to share a meal? Who is it that we um, spend our vacations with? Who are the people you choose to do life with or seek to surround yourselves with, whether it's at church, in your homes, or in your choice of small groups, or who we choose to invite to our social gatherings? Are we fulfilling this new command that Jesus has called us to, or are we just defaulting to what's comfortable you know, we're beginning a new season of community life here at ICC, and I'm actually really excited because we have close to 250 adults who have signed up to participate in some form of small group this year. And um, some of you are continuing with your old small groups, and many of you are embarking on a, a new community life experience. And whether you find yourself, wherever you may find yourself, you're going to have to make a conscious decision, right? From week to week, on how are you going to engage in this community. And it may be hard because it doesn't fit your vision of what Christian community is or should be. You may be disappointed by the people even around you or in your group because they don't meet your expectations or your desires or even share your heart, even your heart for the Lord. And if you find yourself in this place, I want you to hear the words of Dietrich Bonhoeffer from his book Life Together. He says this. He says, those who love their dream of a Christian community more than the Christian community itself become destroyers of that Christian community, even though their personal intentions may be ever so honest, earnest, and sacrificial. Those who love their dream of a Christian community more than the Christian community itself become destroyers of that Christian community. You know, that's, those are some hard words, but I think it's a good word for everyone. Who chooses to be a part of a church. Because we all have like our own vision or our idealized version of what Christian community should look like, be it within a small group or within a broader church. But we have to surrender that. We have to surrender that dream to the actual community that God has given us and placed us in. And I know it's not easy to love those whom we may not share much in common with, but that this is our community. It's a diverse community. And these are the people that God has given us to be in communion with. And if we can love one another more than our dream, then we can be a force for love and for unity. But if we love our own dream, our own vision of what community is, more than the actual people God has given us to to love, then we'll be a destructive force of division and discontent. You know, in its first days, the early church consisted of primarily Jews living in Jerusalem. But as the gospel quickly spread, so did the diversity of the first century church. It brought together just an incredibly diverse mix of people in so many ways. Not just different types of Jews, but Gentiles from all over the world. Not just males, but fully engaged females, which was unprecedented at that time. It included both the rich and the poor, the outcasts and the influential, the powerless and the powerful. This was the makeup of the early church. And you realize part of the reason why so much of the New Testament epistles addresses all these like, interpersonal conflicts between groups and individuals is because the people are so different. They're so different from one another in so many ways. And yet to me, that's the beauty and the messiness of the kingdom. Only God could have brought people from all these places, all these different walks of life, all these nations together under the banner of Christ. And Paul speaks to this in Galatians 3, 26 to 28. He says, So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male nor female and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. You know, Paul's not saying that these categories no longer exist in a literal sense or that they're meaningless now. He's saying that for those who are part of the new creation in Christ Jesus, those categories which have always brought about division and separation are now done away with by the unifying power and the love of Jesus. Whether it's cultural or racial like the Jews and Gentiles, whether it's social or economic like the slaves and the free, whether it's gender or power distinctions like male or female, we are now free. We're free to love one another in ways that the world cannot and will not. And yet, what a powerful witness that is. So different from the world. You know, just a couple weeks ago, many of us witnessed the testimony and the baptism of um, Nathan, one of our graduated high school seniors, before he um, departed for college, and it was so awesome to hear him share how the, for the first time he visited our youth group on a Friday night, he, he immediately felt so loved and so welcomed, and, and he just said from the very first night, he knew, I'm, I'm coming back. And then just six months later, he would make the decision to get baptized. And you know, I wish every person that walked through our doors could, exp- could testify to an experience like that, no matter where they are coming from. And I think there are things that we, even as adults, can learn from our own youth students about how to welcome a newcomer with this kind of uncommon love. And when you follow the lives and the teachings of Jesus in the Gospels, you realize that He's always pressing on, He's always redefining our narrow understanding of what true love is. And he does it by challenging us with hard questions like, Who is your neighbor? Right? Oh, it can't be a Samaritans, anyone but them. Right? What is forgiveness? No, not seven. Seventy times seven. Right? What does generosity really look like? I can't give up my tunic and my cloak. He's always pressing those boundaries. And he didn't just teach it. He lived it. Within his own group of disciples, he assembled such a diverse mix of men and women. And it's amazing they didn't kill each other. If you think about it, we have a blue-collar fisherman that's burdened with like a tax, uh, tax debt in Peter. A greedy tax collector who sold out his country in Matthew. You have a political zealot who would kill for his country, and Simon, and yet under Christ's love and leadership, they not only learn how to love one another, they would go on to give their lives to the gospel. And it makes me wonder, what could ICC look like if we truly lived out Jesus' new command for a new community? What if we did not observe the world's boundary lines or divisions when it comes to loving one another? What if we were willing to set aside our own vision of what a Christian community is or should be and simply love the people that God has brought into our lives and welcome them as a brother or sister, as Jesus welcomed us? Um, I think this is a word that we need to hear as a church. It's not an easy word to deliver, but it's a word that um, obviously was near and dear to the heart of Jesus. It's one of his last words for his most beloved. And it's a word for us today because in so many ways, we really are no different. The challenges are no different. The struggles are the same. That we live in a broken world, separated by sin, segregated by our natural affinities. And we um, also participate, much like the world does, in drawing boundary lines around whom we believe is worthy of our time, our energy, our love. And we need to hear a word like this and we need to heed a word like this because um, the world needs true followers of Jesus who have not only experienced an extraordinary love but who are now able to express it. And so if we can just take a moment in the quietness of this room I know each one of us have people in our lives right now, within this church, within our family of faith, that we find difficult to love. And so we um, will do everything we can to avoid, stay away, to honor our own boundaries, maybe even to protect ourselves. And yet I know um, that the Lord is pressing us to love as he loves, to receive his love, and to now love as he loves. And so wherever the Lord may be pressing this on your heart today, can we just submit it for him? Can we stop resisting? Can we ask God for the strength and the courage to welcome as he welcomed us, to invite as he invited us, to be generous as he was generous to us? You know, just before Paul's famous chapter in 1 Corinthians 13, where he speaks about love, just a couple chapters earlier, he actually talks about communion. And, um... He's expressing his just disappointment with the church in Corinth because of the ways that they are observing the Lord's Supper and practicing communion. Because he's come to realize that instead of being a place of bringing people together, that this time had become a place of division and disunity. Some of the members were eating privately on their own; they were indulging in excess, while others were who had real needs were going hungry. And the the socioeconomic disparities were found all throughout the world had now made its way into the church, and it was was not pretty. What Jesus had instituted as a beautiful expression of love and unity and sharing a meal together as as they remembered and honored his sacrifice to them had become anything but that. It was the opposite of that. And I think that's important to remember. You know, we do this almost every week. What does this really represent? What is the heart of God? You know, from this side of the room, watching us partake in this communion is such a powerful thing to see. Together, we are sharing in the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. And we are one in our love for him and our remembrance of his sacrifice and that we together look forward to a day in which we will participate commune with him, feast, be welcomed. And so let's remember that as we take communion together, we take of this blood which he poured out and sacrificed to us, the bread which was broken as his body was broken on our behalf, so that we might experience wholeness through his sacrifice on the cross.